Section 21 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melanie Young. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. Edited by Francis Rolt-Wheeler. Botany, Chapter 3. Reproduction Structures. The root, the stem, and the leaf being the three principal organs in the nutrition of a plant, the matter next of importance is a consideration of the manner of its reproduction. Usually this is popularly supposed to be by a flower, but a large division of plants are flowerless and reproduce in many diverse ways. As, moreover, the mode of reproduction often constitutes a means of differentiating between various species, it will be treated therein, but certain main principles may be laid down. Thus the earliest form of reproduction is that of mere cell division, which cell, so far as can be seen, is not marked out from other cells. Indeed, all these cells are capable of division. Next comes the setting aside of a certain cell, which is called a spore. And what seems strange in the vegetable world, certain of these, by the lashing about of filaments, are able to swim, and are called swimming spores. So far all has been without sex, and is called asexual. But still very early in the plant kingdom, Two cells very like the swimming spores, yet different in action, are produced, which are called gametes. These have an affinity for each other, come together, fuse or fertilize, and, thus fertilized, are called zygospores. And from these are thrown off spores, which can produce new plants. These two gametes at first are very similar, but in higher forms become strongly dissimilar and are called sperms and eggs. The organ producing the sperms is called the antheridium. That producing the egg is known as the oogonium, in still higher types, the archegonium. The last stage in this type of reproductive process is that in which different plants, sometimes different stems, produce sex organs, which may be termed respectively male and female. The highest and the vast division of the plant kingdom known as spermatophytes, or seed-bearing, is so-called because of its development of seeds and reproduction thereby. The gymnosperms, of which pine trees are the best known, produce no flowers, but the angiosperms have the sexual system very fully developed in the flower. A flower is a highly modified stem peculiarly adapted for perpetuation. The stem-like nature of the flower is very noticeable before it opens, at which time a series of leaves protects the delicate parts within. These green leaves are known as the calyx, each leaf of which is separately distinguished as a sepal. As the bud opens, says Curtis, a number of organs are disclosed. Particularly noticeable are a set of variously colored leaves known as the corolla, each leaf of which is called a petal. Within the perianth, which is the calyx and corolla together, are two kinds of organs, the pistils and the stamens, collectively known as sporophylls, 
since their special work is to produce certain cells called spores. The anthers discharge pollen, which is carried in various ways to the pistil, where the ovules are situated. It is by the fertilization of the female nucleus of the egg cell at the apex of the embryo sac in the pistil by the male nucleus from a pollen grain that plants arise. The transfer of the pollen to the pistil. This transfer, i.e. pollination, is affected in many angiosperms by insects, although in some cases the wind serves to carry pollen as it does in the gymnosperms. This mutually helpful relation between flowers and insects, in some cases, has become so intimate that they cannot exist without each other. Flowers are modified in many ways in relation to insect visits, and insects are variously adapted to flowers. The pollen, Coulter points out, may be transferred to the stigma of its own flower, self-pollination, or of some other flower of the same kind, cross-pollination. In the latter case, the two flowers concerned may be upon the same plant or upon different plants, which may be quite distant from one another. Since flowers are very commonly arranged to secure cross-pollination, it must be more advantageous in general than self-pollination. The advantage of this relation to the insect is to secure food. This the flower provides in the form of either nectar or pollen and insects visiting flowers may be grouped as nectar feeders, represented by moths and butterflies, and pollen feeders, represented by the numerous bees and wasps. The presence of these supplies of food in the flower is made known to the insect by the display of color, by odor, or by form. Moreover, the flower not only must secure the visits of suitable insects, but also must guard against the depredations of unsuitable ones. Cross-pollinating flowers may be illustrated under three heads, distinguished from one another by their methods of hindering self-pollination. But it must be understood that almost every kind of flower has its own way of solving the problems of pollination. The following illustration will serve to show one of the processes that depended upon position. In this case, the pollen and the stigma are ready at the same time but their position in reference to each other, or in reference to some conformation of the flower, makes it unlikely that the pollen will fall upon the stigma. In the family Leguminosa, to which the pea, bean, etc. belong, the several stamens and the single carpel are in a cluster enclosed in a boat-shaped structure, or keel, formed by two of the petals. The stigma is at the summit of the style and projects somewhat beyond the pollen sacs, some of whose pollen lodges on a hairy zone on the style below the stigma. While the stigma is not altogether secure from receiving some pollen, the position does not favor it. The projecting keel is the natural landing place for a bee visiting the flower, and it is so inserted that the weight of the insect depresses it and the stigma comes in contact with its body. Not only does the stigma strike the body, but by the glancing blow the surface of the style is rubbed against the insect, and upon this style, below the stigma, the pollen has been shed and is rubbed off against the insect. At the next flower visited, the stigma is likely to strike the pollen obtained from the previous flower and the style will deposit a new supply of pollen. But in the general flower, as visited by the insect, 
the pollen grains that reach the stigma, the specially prepared surface for receiving them, begin to put out pollen tubes. These tubes grow through the stigma and enter the style, grow down the style and enter the cavity of the ovary, reach the ovules and enter their micropiles, and finally penetrate the ovule to the egg. Throughout this progress of the tube, the male cells are in its tip, and when the egg is reached, they are discharged from the tube and one of them fuses with the egg. This is the act of fertilization, and through it the egg becomes an oospore. An important difference between gymnosperms and angiosperms should be noted here. In gymnosperms, the pollen reaches the ovules, for they are exposed. But in angiosperms, the pollen reaches only the surface, or stigma, of the pistil that encloses the ovules. The oospore, lying in the midst of the ovule, at once begins to germinate, and forms a young plant, or embryo. When the embryo is forming, the ovule develops a hard coat outside, and a seed is the result. The seed coats are varied in many ways, as in the pea and the Brazil nut, but their internal anatomy follows the same general pattern, and they nearly all contain food for the embryonic plant. It is this food in grains and in nuts which is used as foodstuff by man. The three kinds of food stored in seeds are starch, oil, and the albuminous substances called proteids. The young seedling does not push its way straight out of ground, but sends up an arched part of the stem, known as the hypocotyl, and when the surface of the ground is broken, the stem straightens and the cotyledons appear. The lower elongating tip of the hypocotyl directs its growth downward, that is, toward the earth, even if it has to curve about the seed to do so. It is exceedingly sensitive to surrounding influences, a condition that is called irritability, especially so to gravity a condition that is called geotropism, the root being said to be geotropic. If the same stimulus and response that directs the root tip toward the soil continues to direct it within the soil, it continues to grow directly downward and becomes a taproot. When such a root, having entered the soil, begins to send out branches, these do not respond to the stimulus of gravity as does the taproot, for they extend through the soil in every direction. It is likewise sensitive to light, the stem being attracted and the root repelled. With the establishment of roots in the soil and the exposure of green leaves to the light and air, germination is over, for the plant is able to make its own food. End of section 21. Recording by Melanie Young.